Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. No. Hello and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Robert Schull. In this episode, we hear part four of environmental correspondent Zero Rose's interview with Sam Carpenter, the new executive director of the Hoosier Environmental Council on legislation proposed to lawmakers of the Indiana General Assembly in this year's non-budget legislative session in Indianapolis. The the full four-part interview will be available online after the show as an eco-report extra to be found at wfhb.org. And now for your environmental reports. Recently, the Bloomington Herald-Times published a story about the plastic industry and how it has been spreading misconceptions about recycling. One of the most widespread misconceptions is that all plastics can be recycled. Not true. Only certain types are economically and technically able to be recycled. Some plastics, like PVC, are problematic to recycle and can contaminate streams. Many consumers believe that the plastic packaging they dispose of in recycling bins will be recycled. A significant portion of plastic waste, especially single-use packaging, ends up in landfills or incinerators. Recycling is often promoted as an ultimate solution to plastic pollution. The reality is that only a fraction of plastic waste is effectively recycled, and much of it still ends up in the environment. Biodegradable and compostable Plastics are sustainable alternative. However, these materials often require specific conditions to break down, and if they end up in a landfill, they may not degrade as intended. Recycling plastics is costly and complex. It's cheaper to to produce new plastic from raw materials than to recycle existing plastic. It is crucial for consumers to be aware of the misconceptions and to advocate for more transparent and sustainable practices, such as reducing the use of plastic, plastics and promoting the use of alternative materials. One of the common complaints about solar panels is that they take up valuable agricultural land. This factor has canceled several proposed projects in Indiana. A story from Inside Climate Change finds that ranchers in Wyoming have demonstrated a useful example. Bright Night, a global energy company, has proposed to build more than one million solar panels, a battery storage facility, and a few miles of above-ground transmission lines on a 4,738 acres of private land run by the Tillard Ranching family near Glenrock. The Dutchman Project, as it is called, is notable neither for its generation nor its storage capacity, but for the creatures moseying beneath its panels. The base of each sun-tracking panel will be several feet off the ground, allowing enough room for the tillered sheep to continue grazing. In a state whose ranching industry predates its inclusion in the Union, pairing solar, solar generation with livestock grazing 
or other agricultural practices, a technique called agrovoltaics could forge an unlikely alliance between two industries, one ancient, the other high-tech, that typically compete for resources. At the conclusion of their February 6th hearing regarding the Dutchman Project, Converse County Commissioners directed the county attorney to draft an order of approval, indicating they would likely grant the project its permit later this month. This leaves us with one question. Why, in a state where the wind always blows, this ranch chose solar over wind? The current mass extinction event is at an early stage. O.E. Wilson, the dean of American biology predicted the globe will extinguish one million species. Today, some conclude this assessment is too low. There are many reasons for this extinction event. Loss of habitat is the primary cause. Humans occupy every livable space on Earth. Climate change plays a significant role. Poaching is another contributor. One we might not think of of is cats. People take their cats to islands with flightless birds, and soon the birds disappear forever. Solving this problem is straightforward. Humans created the problem, and we must solve it. Saving many species is not a matter of knowing what to do, but rather the will to do it. For example, the number of right whales in the North Atlantic has fallen from 600 at the beginning of the century to about 350 today. The main killer is ship strikes. These mostly occur near ports involved in worldwide trade. The big container ships are not trying to hit a whale and often are not even aware that they have hit one. Most of the right whales have moved north out of New England area because the water is too warm and little food... uh, Cocoa pods. Cocoa pods remains. Most during the summer, are now in the Gulf of St. Lawrence and are thus at risk from all the boat traffic. A solution is to limit boat speeds to 10 knots in areas where there are whales, but for the shippers, time is money, and they are often unwilling to slow down. Another issue is becoming entangled in lobster gear. The common lobster set consists of a buoy with attached rope that goes to the bottom and is attached to a lobster pot, a.k.a. traps, and then a line with perhaps 10 traps ending by a rope to the surface. Thus, there are two ropes for every set. For most of the year, just in the U.S., there are about 2 million vertical ropes in the water for most of the year. If a whale hits a rope, there is some probability of the rope wrapping around a flipper or tail, a.k.a. fluke, after dragging around the rope and possibly some lobster traps for a year or two, the rope often has cut into the whale and the whale bleeds to death or dies of starvation. The problem could be cut in half if the rope at the non-hauling end broke at 1,000 pounds. An adult right, right whale can break a rope at that breaking strength. The rope at the hauling end is much stronger because the straps can be tangled with the bottom The problem is the lobster men have rejected the use of weak rope because occasionally they need to haul using the non-hauling rope. Another solution is to use no vertical rope. The ropes are carried to the bottom by a device that can trigger the release of the rope. Thus, when the lobster man arrives at the exact location, he activates the device and the rope floats to the surface. Clever. The problem is... These release systems are expensive, and some trawlers may carry the set 
several miles from its original location. What might work is one weak rope and one strong rope with a release device. This would seem to solve all the problems. This concept has not been tested. And there is the issue of warming waters off New England, which is driving the lobsters north. Next week, the discussion will be on how to protect the few remaining cold water species, such as codfish. Parts of this story come from the New York Times. Climate change is stretching the length of time in parts of the far north that go without sea ice, which polar bears rely on to hunt their preferred prey, blubbery, calorie-rich seals. When the ice melts in summer, the bears move on to land and face two options. They can rest and slow down to a state approaching hibernation, or they can forage for alternative food like berries, bird eggs, and small land animals. Scientists tracking 20 solar bear Scientists tracking 20 polar bears in Manitoba below the Arctic Circle at the southern end of the animal's range found that the option the polar bears chose didn't make much difference. Bears who foraged generally got just enough calories from their small meals to replenish the energy they spent finding them, but not enough to maintain their body mass. Terrestrial foods are not adequate to prolong the period that polar bears can survive on land, said Anthony Pagano, a wildlife biologist at the U.S. Geological Survey and the lead author of a study based on the research published recently in Nature Communications. In western Hudson Bay, the ice-free period is three weeks longer now than it was in the 1970s, and polar Polar bears currently spend about 130 days on land during the year. Scientists estimate that going forward there will be 5 to 10 more days without sea ice each decade. It is estimated that the polar bear population in the western Hudson Bay area, an area extending from the Manitoba-Ontario boundary through to Chesterfield Inlet in Nunavut, is approximately 935 miles. The population of polar bears in this region has dropped by 30% over the last five years. And now we turn to Zero Rose and Part 4 with HEC, Executive Director Sam Carpenter, on legislation supported by, supported or opposed by the Hoosier Environmental Council in the 2024 legislative session at the state capitol relating to groundwater, the LEAP pipeline project, and the phasing out of fossil fuels. The full... The full four-part interview will be available online after the show as an ERX Eco Report Extra to be found at WFHB.org. And uh, finally, I think one of the last bills you guys are proposing that I know about is uh, HB 1382, which has to do with delaying fossil fuel closures. I guess that might kind of relate to those dreaded ESG goals that and climate plans that corporations are putting together yeah so uh 1382 was a bill that was introduced that would um require permission by the indiana utility regulatory commission the iurc to close fossil fuel generation it would do more than that it would also uh eliminate the ability to accept federal funds for renewables incentives for renewables to create new uh, clean renewable generation. Um, so very much an attack on our transition to clean renewable energy, very much of a uh, bailout, a uh, support, a uh, kind of give me to, to, yeah, to, 
protectionism of established industries. Yeah, and, and really coal um, is the area that that is coming from. It's coming from the coal lobby. Um, the thing about coal is, one, it's expensive. Uh, the utilities are wanting to move away from coal because coal is expensive. Um, companies want the utilities to move away because their uh, costs are higher with coal. Um, you also so, have the lower air quality situation with businesses wanting to migrate to an area. That's one of the things they look at quality of life and things like air quality. Yeah, sure. Uh, air quality, uh, water quality, um, all these things are impacted negatively by coal. Um, Indiana has more unlined coal ash pits than any other state in the nation. Um, these coal pits are next to waterways because the uh, generation, the power plants require a lot of water to operate. Uh, they sit in these uh, unlined ponds. Um, they, the, the groundwater gets up into them and then it leaches out uh, arsenic and mercury and other toxins into our groundwater. Um, there's a lot of expenses. If you kind of factored in the impacts of the uh, health impacts, uh, the environmental impacts, the uh, climate impacts related to coal. Oh, I mean, coal by as it is now is expensive, but if you factored in those things, you'd realize it was many times as expensive than you realize. Um, so fortunately, uh, this bill doesn't seem to be uh, receiving a hearing. Um, we did speak with the uh, author of this bill, uh, Representative Ledbetter, uh, and uh, and raised our opposition um, and had a good conversation about you know alternatives. But um, this this bill does not seem to be progressing forward. Um, it did move forward in Kentucky, a similar bill, very similar language, just passed in Kentucky. Um, so we expect that this language will probably come back in a future session, and we will certainly be, you know, active on it in opposition if it does. Well, it sounds like, uh, you know, this is a federal election year when people are paying a little more attention to some issues. It sounds like you have a, this year to raise the profile of some of these things that didn't get through like the community solar and agrivoltaics because i think you'd find a lot of popular support for that but the average person is completely unaware that there was even any such proposals going on so uh, raising the profile of, of those issues would seem to be a prime task for the hec in this year in preparation toward the next uh, legislative session next year yeah, absolutely. And in, in raising awareness and giving people a way to connect on these issues is one of our main goals. Um, and we do, you know, encourage people to visit our website. It's a HECWEB, H-E-C-W-E-B dot org. And there's lots of resources there. Uh, there's calls to action. Um, we do currently have calls to action on our uh, wetlands bill, uh, wetland bills. Um, we also have um, one thing that we we forgot to talk about, and let me go back to it, is, um, oh, it's kind of here. 
Oh, Senate Bill 52. We have a call to action in opposition to Senate Bill 52. Um, this is a bill that prohibits uh, dedicated bus lanes for public transit. Um, this is really a direct attack, attack on the blue line in Indianapolis uh, that would connect uh, Indianapolis uh, downtown to the airport. Um, there's a lot of benefits to public transit. One, it's a uh, it's an affordable transportation option for people who don't have cars, don't have access to cars. Um, it is a way to move a lot of people without the congestion, without the pollution that goes along with uh, vehicles. Um, and it's a con this connection to the uh, airport. Um, we are a city, Indianapolis is a city that um, really has a lot of conventions. Um, people fly into the airport. We have this kind of state-of-the-art uh, airport that we're all proud of. Um, but we don't have a good public transit option to get from to the airport down to the convention center or downtown. Uh, this um, blue line would allow that. So um, this is another case where the General Assembly is saying, here's what's best for you, local community. Um, not listening, whereas Indianapolis uh, voted on a rep referendum to fund plan, uh, fund public transit. Uh, a vote that was 60 to 40 in favor. Um, the General Assembly is saying, well, sorry, citizens of Indianapolis, uh, you don't really know what's best. Um, you don't really shouldn't make that investment in public transit. Uh, we're here to tell you that that's not a good idea. Uh, this kind of uh, thinking of that the state can tell uh, communities um, how to, um, you know, make these investments um, is a mistake. And that's been a repeat. Uh, the General Assembly has been a repeat offender on this uh, particular approach. Um, the other thing that's in jeopardy with Senate Bill 52 is federal investment um, that is already gone in and future investment that would go into the blue line. Um, so, unfortunately, this did pass out of the Senate. There's been similar bills in the past that haven't made it forward. Uh, this one did. And uh, so there is a way to take action on this. And I know I don't I know if you're in the Bloomington area, but uh, this would impact, uh, you know, public transit for Bloomington, uh, for Fort Wayne, for uh, Gary, other areas in our state as well that might want to be making investments in uh public transit. So is there a way that that does kind of affect uh, statewide rapid rapid transit? Are you just thinking that there'll be kind of uh, uh, people following that policy in, in other localities? Well, this would uh, prohibit um, dedicated lanes for rapid transit, um, regardless of where. Statewide? Statewide. Okay. And that's despite the amendments that were made, exempting the red line, other other lines there in Indy? Well, uh, the red line is already in place. Um, the purple line is already uh, in construction uh, in Indianapolis, so they're exempt. 
but um, other ones where construction has not begun would not be exempt as I understand it. I see. Well, great. I, I think I guess it's a pretty good breakdown and uh, uh, people can you know find out who their representatives are that are involved in any of these bills at the HEC website. Is there anything else that uh, you want to highlight or any initiatives or yeah, we're going to have a conversation on uh we're going to have a conversation on February 8th with our legislative team. It's going to be a webinar. Um people can sign up for that. It'll be in the evening. Um let's see. At 7 uh 7 p.m. that evening. Um so people can come to that and hear directly from our policy team about updates on what's going on with these bills. Um, so I would invite uh, people to that and also just realize this is a way to get engaged. Um, you know, I said at the very beginning that I'm relatively new to this position and I have a lot of concern about, you know, climate and the environment and leaving a better place uh, for my kids and future generations. And it can be overwhelming as an individual <clears throat> uh focusing on these issues. And what I want people to realize is by becoming engaged, uh, being part of a community that is addressing these concerns, uh, it's really, uh, for me anyways, <laughs> it's moved my worry to action and uh, helps me uh, have a, a better outlook. Um, I can find those areas of where we are making progress. Um, and so I encourage people to, to get involved. Um, what we try to do is offer different ways um, based on kind of what's the circumstances in your life to get involved. So it can be as simple as like signing your name onto a letter, or it can be all the way to like reaching out and meeting with your elected officials. So there's uh, different ways or just reading a newsletter and, and keeping informed. Uh, that's the approach that we're trying to take and trying to reach as many Hoosiers who care about our environment and want to leave our uh, state a better place for our kids. Um, we're trying to reach as many Hoosiers as we can that way. Yeah, it's kind of a mental health regimen to, to uh, combat the climate anxiety that more and more people are, are having, hearing all the doom and gloom and not knowing where to plug in to do anything about it. That's right. That's right. If we can change that, uh, the energy of that anxiety to uh, uh, proactive action, um, it at least, it, if nothing else, it, I think it'll improve our, our mental health. And and I think it'll have a different, make a difference as well. I'm, I'm seeing it happen. Well, great. Thank you, Sam. Um, I'm sure we'll be uh, talking in the future and trying to get updates uh, about anything that we should be aware of coming out of the the state house and what you guys have going on uh, across the state. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity and thanks for your interest in this. And uh, I appreciate the chance to speak with you. This is in nature. This is Juliana Daly with in nature. Today, I am talking to you about the endangered American kestrel. The American kestrel is also called the sparrow hawk. 
It is the smallest and most common falcon in North America. It is about the same weight as a blue jay. American kestrels eat mostly insects and other invertebrates, as well as small rodents and birds. Common foods include grasshoppers, cicadas, beetles, and dragonflies. It is one of the most beautiful falcons in North America. It has a rusty tail and back and two vertical black stripes on its face. It has a short hooked bill, white cheeks, a long tail, and long pointed wings. It has been clocked up to 39 miles an hour. They are found throughout America, Canada, and South America. They like open habitats with adequate cavities for nesting and perches for hunting. Something that is special about kestrels is they are very good at hovering. With the help of a good headwind, kestrels can flap their wings vigorously and maneuver their tail to stay in one spot, like a helicopter in midair, while searching for ground prey. Kestrels are identified as a species of concern, and they are included in several regional lists of birds of conservation concern by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, mostly because of loss of habitat, pesticides, and climate change. You've been listening to In Nature, a production of WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. For Eco Report, I'm Juliana Daly. And I am Robert Schull. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming events. A maple syrup made easy workshop is scheduled for Saturday, February 24th from noon to 1.30 p.m. at the RCA Community Park in Bloomington. This hands-on workshop will discuss tree identification, equipment, collection, and sugaring techniques. Register at bloomington.in.gov slash parks. The Winter Hike Series at Brown County State Park continues with the CCC Ruins and Deserters Cave Hike on Saturday, February the 24th from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. This is a 1.5-mile round-trip hike that will take you to the Civilian Conservation Corps area. Then you will hike to the Deserters Cave, which is a very rugged section of off-trail hiking. Take a full moon hike at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, February 24th from 8 to 9 p.m. Experience the park at night while learning the history and folklore of the full snow moon. Moon. Meet at the Lakeview Activity Center for this one-mile hike on Trail 1 and 4. Celebrate February the 29th with a leap year hike at Spring Mill State Park from 1 to 2 p.m. Take advantage of this extra day as you hike through nature, 
on Trail 4 and learn Leap Year facts, superstitions, and folklore. Meet at the Sycamore Shelter House. Finish up the Brown County Winter Hike Series with a Brown County Dog Hike on Saturday, March 3rd from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. Meet at the Ogle Lakes parking lot for a moderate hike on Trail 7. Your dog must be on a six-foot leash. And that wraps up our show for this week. Ego Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Juliana Daly. Today's news feature was produced by Zero Rose and edited by Cade Young. Juliana Daly assembled the script, which was edited by the Eco Report team. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Cade Young and Noel Herhusky Schneider produced today's show. Brandon Blewett is our engineer. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Robert Schull. And this is Eco Report. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.